What's up, everybody? This is Grant, that cause artist. Welcome to another episode of the Disruptors for Good podcast. Today, we're going to speak with Rebecca Van Bergen, the founder and executive director of Nest, a nonprofit that's building a new handworker economy to advance the global workflo- workforce for women. She graduated with her master's degree in social work from Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri in 2006, which she alludes to as the same year as Muhammad Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in microfinance. She then followed her passion to turn Kraft, which is the second largest employer of women in the entire world, into a means to correct the gender and income imbalance in the world. She found a nest at age 24. I'm going to go through a little bit of her accolades right now. It, it's kind of a lot, but I just wanted to show you the scope of what you know she and her team uh, has achieved thus far. So Rebecca's accolades includes being a Draper Richard Kaplan social entrepreneur, Accords Fellow and recipient of the Oshaka and CNA Foundation's 2016 Fabric of Change Award for Innovation in Fashion Sustainability. She has also been honored as a PBS changemaker and one of the White House top 100 entrepreneurial enterprises led by a young person. What I appreciate about Rebecca and Nest and her team's journey is that they're taking a very entrepreneurial approach to their, to their nonprofit, to their organization. You know, they change with the times. They decide to add new things to their program when it's when they feel it's a good fit. And really their purpose is to nav- help navigate the world of business for these hand workers all around the world. These artisans and these craftsmen that are making things with their hands and trying to find ways to, to sell them to the public, whether it be wholesale to big chains like Target, which we talked a little bit about how she's talking with these big brands about, you know, getting more ethical pieces of product into their stores and making them more accessible to to consumers uh, here in North America and in Europe and in other parts of the world where people like to buy, you know, these certain products with a sort of stamp of approval of sustainability and a bit of efficacy behind them. So her team takes a, an amazing approach of, of how, you know, we can turn, you know, entrepreneurs in parts of the world that never existed yet, you know, and make that happen, you know, through e-commerce, if that's what they need, through marketing, through branding. Uh, the nonprofit really does a lot of interesting things in, in helping individuals, specifically women, to provide for their families, provide for themselves, and create a business from their home. And they've worked on a, a ton of different things. Now they've sort of released their certification process where there'll be a sort of a label on certain products. There'll be a Nest label where consumers can now you know really understand where the product comes from and it's a stamp of approval that it was made with certain dignity behind it and efficacy so it's a really interesting conversation and i love talking to individuals that start something from passion place a passion and it turns into this like you know global phenomenon right and it's sort of affecting people around the world it's something that you just don't expect to happen but you know when you do things with a passion strange things start to happen so I, I really want to thank Rebecca and her team for, for navigating everything that they've gone through, obviously, during COVID and also helping out a lot of these individuals, these small businesses, even you know what we think of small businesses different than what a global small business may be. But helping those individual women and hand workers navigate COVID-19 as well and help them with grants and and funding in ways that they can and the nonprofit can. But it's uh, it's really been an amazing journey that Rebecca has taken. And Nest is just going to have a really, really powerful future when working with you know all these these big brand names like Williams Sonoma, Target, like I said before, really kind of bridging that gap between ethical and sustainability products into you know big box stores that we all have access to. So that's a really interesting 
topic that we dive into that I really enjoy talking about is, is how we can sort of scale uh, social enterprise. All of us can get involved in it. Um, it's a day-to-day thing that we all can, can appreciate and all get involved in and, and sort of you know spend our, our money wisely on. So a little bit of housekeeping note, I uh, put the jobs board back up. So jobs.causeartist.com. I had a little bit of difficulty with some of the tech, but that's back up and live. So you can submit your job for free or you can just search jobs for free as well. Um, so just adding something else to, to the platform that I hope you guys like. And if you have any questions, just let me know. Grant at causeartist.com. I'll be talking more about Social Impact Wire as that gets wrapped up and finished it. and Start beta testing on a couple things and I'll lay out like what the pricing is and what the features are and things like that. And obviously, I think many people will have some questions, so I'm happy to answer anything I can about that as well. If you like this podcast, and maybe you'll like the, the other podcast I started uh, a few weeks ago called Investing in Impact, where I kind of talk to a lot of venture capitalists and fund managers and private equity firms, big, big foundations. It talks about finance in sort of this social impact era where how can we get more leaders in the investment space to come over to the social impact space and invest in companies and brands and products that have an impact on the world that's positive rather than negative and scale those businesses. So I try to talk to, to a lot of different people in finance and, and angel investing and trying to understand where investors are, where their mindset mindset is to really get an idea of, of how maybe know to go about getting funding for for your social impact startup or your brand or company and ways in different ways to navigate that Um, so i hope you enjoy that if you want to subscribe to that investing in impact Uh, my friend jasmine just released her first episode for for a new season for uh, impact india which is a podcast where she interviews uh, some really amazing founders all across india and that's another podcast on this little cause artist podcast ecosystem that we're we're trying to build out i think that i'll also be starting up another podcast called tools for scale with a friend of mine he's super busy but he's successfully ran uh, a really sort of unbelievable sort of marketing firm the last 10 years and i think he can really give some great insight into what are the digital tools that are being used and how we can all use them as founders uh, as entrepreneurs or as marketing people as operation people as solo founders like there's so many digital tools out there that we try to go through all the ones that we have used you know throughout our journeys building building our companies and and helping other people build their companies and kind of walk through all these digital tools that we're using tell you which ones the best which ones to avoid really help you build a good digital you know stack for your for your company and, and that you can scale you know and keep your team very lean and use a lot of these products to to help grow and be sustainable so look out for that tools for scale it'll it'll hopefully be out really soon but i'll obviously keep you updated on that but i just wanted to give you a little bit of info of, of what's coming at i'm really excited about that i love talking about the technology and all the different you know tools that that i use here at cause ours but also love to hear about all the new ones coming out and ones that you use too throughout your day-to-day throughout your business or your organization or your company so yeah, that's coming soon. So hope all is well. Stay safe, stay healthy. If you have any questions, grant at causeartist.com, www.causeartist.com if you just want to check out some more content. Hope all is well. See you next week. Thanks. Bye. How I like to start is, is talking about an individual's journey and uh, a person's sort of passion and work that they're on right now is usually an individual's sort of life life's work in, in a bunch of different ways. Um, and it feels like Nest is, is that for you. 
you want to take us back to the beginning of Nest, if you want to start near college or, or right after it, and take us to the journey of how Nest was sort of created. My, my background's social work, so I studied um, to be a social worker, and I thought I was going to do direct practice, so do therapy with, with people, and, um, but I was really interested in international development, and, um, and so that was kind of part of my course of study, and the year that I graduated with my master's in social work, Muhammad Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize for microfinance. And at the time, if you were studying international development or interested in those kinds of things, you know, people started calling microfinance a solution to poverty, and they were, you know, tons of organizations, for-profit and nonprofit, started giving out loans yeah. um, in significant numbers to women around the world. And, you know, in our country, to take out a loan is debt. It's not a business. And so mm. to be scaling, giving out loans without more capacity building and training and market development and all these other pieces that go into successful business development seemed from a social work perspective, like it might be challenging for people. And so the kind of original premise for Nest was to create a more holistic model for business development. My interest was women and women and families. And um, and if you look around the world, women are practicing craft. That's mm -hmm. their, by and large, the kind of majority of what women know how to do and are doing um, in many many emerging markets. And so that seemed like the appropriate sector. My grandmother and great grandmother were quilters and sewers. And I feel like <laughs> we're all personally connected to craft in different ways. And so that was our founding. And, you know, 14 years later, that's still very core to, to what we do. And the model has shifted and we've grown, but, um, but that kind of central mission has really not shifted at all. Wow. Yeah. When I was reading up on it, it said like, craft that industry is sort of the second largest employer in the world of women correct yeah, yeah. yeah. and it, it was uh you kind of see the success domestically through sort of like platforms like etsy and, and sort of pinterest highlight a lot of sort of craftsmanship from from the women's perspective but when you look at globally and, and sort of when individuals don't have access to stuff to platforms like that to kind of showcase there's so many talented people around the world it's just sort of access to Technology, like you said, education and platforms where they can enable their practices is even more. So what was sort of the first, I guess let's, let's, let's talk about what actually like Nest is, right? And sort of, we talk about development, we talk about women, emerging markets and craft and all. Can you put it like all together into like what is more like the mission statement maybe and kind of like what, what it actually means to a person that interacts with Nest, right? Or if, if a woman like signs up for something like what are they what are they getting like what's what's the interaction there so nest's mission is to help support market access and development for artists and enterprises around the world um, and so that's kind of all of our programs are core to that, but um, kind of central to our work is that we have um, what we call our Artisan Guild, which is an open access network for artists and businesses globally. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about a thousand businesses in over a hundred countries and it's free to join. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to provide us information about your business and what your core challenges are. Um, and then we funnel a bunch of different resources to the whole guild. We run a pro bono consulting program where either entire companies can sign up in, like through an employee engagement program, or that just want to give their time can sign up. And so we kind of match make to do projects like a new e-commerce website or a pricing strategy. It's a huge mm -hmm. range. Um, and then some other things. And then we have a series of more intensive application-based programs. So once you're a member of the guild, you can apply to join some of our more in-depth programs. So we run an accelerator where um, we select 10 businesses from the guild that apply and we do much more in-depth mm -hmm. on year-long work to really help them take their business to the next level. Um, we have a program in the United States called Makers United, where we're really focused on building more diversity and inclusivity in the makers movement, which hasn't seen that yet. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're 
working to to support that. Um, and we, you know, we have, and then the, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but, um, and then we run an ethical handcraft program, a program really designed to help bring transparency to the artisan sector, which is home-based. It's often a cash-based informal right. transaction. And so transparency has not been something the artisan sector has been very good at. And so we run that program and it carries a seal of ethical handcraft, which you can find in certain markets now um, and growing. We kind of work directly with artisan businesses and then we partner with companies, a huge variety of companies, big and small, to help them integrate artisan sourcing into their supply chains in, in better ways. Yeah. Yeah, that was the one thing that I was looking at is getting sort of the the big box store, so to speak, to kind of get into the sector a little bit and talk a little bit about that with working with, because I think that's where obviously things can scale very quickly and a lot of impact can happen when we have these traditional big box stores who, I don't know if they just haven't cared or if they just never really knew it existed or something, but they were just like, how can you get the cheapest product for the cheapest, right? Put it on our shelves and now we're Everybody has garbage cheap products in their homes, right? So how is it talking with them about this approach where to get more arms like this into the ability for people in the United States or Canada or Europe or whatever, they can walk into a Target or another store and actually easily find these items and purchase them? What has that relationship been like? And has it been fruitful? Have they really interacted with you and really enjoyed saying yes to a bunch of this stuff? Uh, you know, I think it's interesting because I started Nest 14 years ago. And at the time, mm-hmm. Etsy actually founded the year after I was after Nest. So like pre Etsy world, mm-hmm. artisan and handcraft were just like not things people talked about. It was like a kitschy Christmas tree ornament, yep. maybe like things you picked up on your travels, it was just not mainstream. Um, and then 14 years later, you know, there's like artisan Doritos, there's like, art, you know, everyone uses the term, and it's everywhere. And but, you know, at 14, I like never would have dreamed we'd be working with companies like Target and Amazon, like in, but it just speaks to the mainstream. And I think I'm going to pivot a little bit, but I'll come sure. back to the and, you know, I think also the like really steady rise in automation, robotics, technology is is just really grown in that those 14 years. And I think that the human psyche, like we need we need a yin to the yang, yeah. like we have something besides that. And so I think we the, the like demand for handcraft and authenticity and human touch has really risen in, in steep parallel to that kind of technological advancement. And I think we'll continue to do so. So I think, I don't know that that's what's driving big companies, but I think that the consumer demand is is definitely continues to rise. Um, and we really see them as happening very in parallel. For, you know, for the working with those companies, for us, it's really important because I think the sustainable ethical fashion movement mm-hmm. has to be accessible to people. So yep. like it cannot be only luxury items or sustainable or yep. environmental or all these things. And so we have to create models where, you know, a, you know, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, where my family or people in Missouri or Kansas or Iowa can access and like, and just enter a store where they're shopping and find things that are good. We can't yeah. like sit for elites. And so, um, so we're really excited about that. I also think the scale and scope of the number of people who can produce artists and crafts, like we need big markets to keep all of those people employed. And so that's also exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the evolution of of the industry has and I think just more people knowing about it right and more people sort of asking for it especially Target I think they've done a pretty good job of like having more sort of D2C brands so to speak but also like B Corps in their store they're starting to definitely open up into like looking at brands online that are successful and having them in you know striking deals with them and 
you know, this is a really interesting approach too, because I think that basically it opens up sort of like the Etsy's and the Pinterest, like into, like you said, an accessible location where it's not just trying to have to find them online somewheres or you're paying $60 for something, right? And it's it's just not, one, it's not accessible from like, maybe a location standpoint, but also from a price point. Yeah. Afford- no, no. Affordability yeah. for sort of sustainable sustainable products or ethical products has to get lower so more people can be involved. And yeah. that's, you know, that's when the scale happens and, and more and more sort of different levels of impact can happen across the world because then we're having people who've never sort of had traditional employment or like, you know, sustainable employment now, right? If they have accessibility to the US market or to you know North American market or other markets around the world that can support them easily. That's a really transformational thing that that could really bring a lot of impact to to global communities around the world. That's I mean that's just what you said before like technology is just at a point where it's easily it's easily doable. Yeah. Yeah. Not easy, but it's doable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The great one of the best quotes I heard lately was like uh, easy isn't simple, right? Or simple isn't easy. It's it's one of those it's one of those and I was like, man, it, it's very, it's like so perfectly said because it could seem simple or easy, but then it's just nothing is that, right? Absolutely nothing is that. I wanted to go back to something you said before when you talk to um, all these different individuals, whether it's domestically or internationally, about maybe what their needs are, like what their struggles are. What are maybe like the top three things that you see people in need of or that request that are part of the guild or have some interaction with NAS? Like what are some of the real problems that they face that are solvable? I mean, I think by and large, they're artists and businesses. So they're usually coming to it as artists or craftspeople or designers or, um, and so they come with creativity or like a heritage technique that their grandmother taught their mother taught them. So I would say it's rarely around designer um, product development. They they tend to know what they're making. But they're not business people. I mean, I, I wasn't either. I'm a social worker by training. And so um, so understanding accounting and profit and loss mm-hmm. statements and scaling a business and human resources and all of the, the things that as a business goes from like you making something to you employing people to make things right. and having sell it in, in larger quantities, I think that tends to be where we focus. So uh, much more on the kind of business development end of the spectrum. We do do some design work, but but by and large, they the, feel like- They already have the products done, exactly. right? It's, it's yeah. trying to get the products to other exactly. people. Yeah. And, and so, um, so business development and then, you know, sales and marketing are always huge, right? We just want bigger markets. They have more people to employ. They need consistency. So that's always like number one for people. <laughs> do they, do they usually have decent internet access where you, you do sort of say, Hey, we'll, we'll create like an Etsy store for you or like, or do you prefer them to have their own site or both? Sure. Like, I guess from a tech nerd down a tech like stack standpoint, like what, what are some of the tools that you guys usually recommend for them to kind of go from, from a foundational level? So I think I'm going to backstep a minute, but I think one of the things about the guild is that anyone can join it. Mm -hmm. So we have like a singular maker in the United States who's, you know, making something in her spare bedroom. And then we have cooperatives in the Philippines with 5,000 dispersed basket weavers. And so those are like hugely different enterprises with different, different scales. But part of our hope really is that, you know, the art, like artisan, even though it's gained in so much popularity, it's still really pegged as being like very niche and like non-scalable in this Mm -hmm. uh, 
especially in the worlds of philanthropy and big philanthropy. So, uh, you know, as people look at poverty alleviation solutions, you'll see things on healthcare, you'll see things on technology, you'll see things on agriculture, but you never see people talking about the artisan sector. And so mm-hmm. part of it us was how do we preserve like the specialness and it is sort of niche sometimes what they're making but also show that this is massive scale like there are people in every country of the world doing this there you know that this is a major economic play for women and so really trying to change the narrative around the scale and scope that artisanship is and so that's been a big piece of our mission to try to just reframe the conversation for people around the sector its potential its power um, because we've really seen that it's lagged far, far, far behind agriculture and other sectors in terms of development and innovation. And so part of the Guild is broad in scope on purpose so that we can start having a picture of how big it is. But that does mean that we have to be very creative in the way we disperse programs, which is why the Guild gets a lot of things that we offer, but all all of them are very tailored. So it's not like everyone, every once in a while, we'll put like a webinar up online and people can access it. But a lot of the programs are like one business, one professional pro bono consulting because people are at such different stages. And then when we do more in-depth work, we're able to curate cohorts of people that are at sort of the same stage or size or scale um, so that the learning and programming is really a fit for them. So it's a huge range, but I would say by and large, the the members of the guild, they have to have somebody who speaks English mm-hmm. and somebody who has internet access to join because that's how we disperse content. Um, we do have translations of things, but you would have to be able to get into our system to, to get access to translated materials. So that's sort of the one prerequisite, I would say. Um, and then we do have a, a focus internationally on businesses that want to export. I think most of them find Nest because of that. And so mm-hmm. we have some that are local cooperatives that are aren't exporting at all, but I think it's something like in the high 80s percent of the members of our guild are actively exporting. Um, So they have websites um, and they want to be reaching quote unquote Western markets. Um, So I'd say that that's definitely an emphasis, but then, you know, some choose to have a lot of them are wholesaling or private label for brands. So they Mm -hmm. don't have their own site or if they do, it's just product photos. Um, Some have e-commerce. I don't want to like pivot into this, but we're doing for COVID relief for a lot of our businesses, we're doing a massive e-commerce website grant making program because makers either don't sell to direct to consumers or they rely on things like in-person markets to so which aren't happening and with wholesale accounts basically you know it's just uh just it's mind-boggling how many of our partners have had orders canceled or indefinitely on hold and so we're granting websites to to people so that they can um, have a way to kind of stay open for business yeah i mean it's it's definitely obviously it's something everybody deals with and people deal with it in different ways and it, it, it hurts them in different ways or some companies are it's benefiting them in, in different ways right so it's it's a very it's a very odd situation what i guess what are some of the when you say like sort of canceled orders and, and that that that's sort of from like stores buying big bulk orders wholesale those have been sort of like canceled or put on hold until further notice big bulk orders or tiny ones like a lot yeah. of people sell to local boutiques or museum mm-hmm. shops where closed, yeah. they're all closed and um and don't have the ability so canceled orders for this season people not then you know then those stores are going to open and have a store full of inventory they have to sell right. so they're definitely placing new orders I want to talk a little bit about the certification process. Yeah. I think one, what what sort of is like the process or like the assessment to 
to actually certify a person or a business. I'm not sure how, if it's certifying a person or it's certified a business or, and then what are your thoughts just on like the certification arena, right? Yeah. And yeah, just like with there's, I mean, we see so many, especially on food, but now as we become more of the product side, we are seeing a ton of different labels and it can be a cause for confusion sometimes if people don't understand them, but it can be good too for people who do understand it. It does give them uh, a quick overview of, it might, it might help them decide on their purchase. So I guess one, let's talk about sort of the nest seal first and then go into maybe the, the landscape of the, the label seal sort of market in general. So, you know, obviously it's, it's probably obvious that most artisans work in their homes or in very small workshops. And so I didn't know this, but as larger companies started having an interest in the artisan sector, like this was just like dive deep into a world I knew nothing about um, when we got involved in this. But a lot of big companies have what they call a quote unquote, no homeworker policy, Mm -hmm. where after, you know, some big companies got caught like with with children stitching soccer balls in their home, a lot of companies panicked that that parts of their supply chain were getting subcontracted from a factory to a home worker to do their goods. And they didn't want to be caught red handed with home based workers that they didn't know about um, and definitely not child labor. Mm-hmm. And so they put in place these no home worker policies, um, which sometimes work, but often inadvertently push it underground, right? Because then if you're a factory and you know that there's a no homeworker policy, you're definitely not going to disclose that you're ha- that you have homeworkers. Um, and so it's made for this kind of strange thing, but a lot of, but it also meant that as we were bringing artisan workforce to companies, we would hear like, well, can't you move them into a factory? Well, no, we can't really move them into a factory. Or companies would say like, okay, we're going to send our auditing team in and they would show up with a clipboard and like, be like, no fire extinguisher, no exit sign, but it's like a home. And um, like there was this like major disconnect between artisanship while those policies existed. We kind of did a, like, it just seemed crazy to me that this didn't already exist in the world of you know, post Rana Plaza, where people are, are pretty aware of their supply chains are trying to be. But it but it was true that nobody had actually written a set of standards for what work could look like in a home or in mm-hmm. a small work. And so, so for companies to overturn the policies, you would have to have this standard in place. And so for us, the like journey into certification, you know, lots of certifying agencies, like that's their sole mission. They were founded to do that. And it was, you know, that's their go-to. For us, it was like only an unlock to getting artisans into markets. So it was like, and still is for us. So it's not our sole focus, but it's become a big focus. But I think that like, that's an interesting perspective in how I view the certification world and that like we see it as a stepping stone to an ultimate end of employment mm-hmm. um, not as like the sole thing to exist. We put together when we, um, you know, one of the things that kind of after some disasters happened in factories, something that happened was that every company wrote their own standards. So they were like, this is our code of conduct and this is what we want to happen in our supply chains. And people like joke about this, but I've heard the joke so many times of, and people like actually with a straight face that like you'll go to a factory and there'll be like three fire extinguishers in a row be, and you'll ask the factory owner and he's like, well, every company that we source with wants me to have it at a different height. And it's easier for me to have three than to like, remember to move it when the auditor comes. And so like, there's a lot of duplicative efforts. There's a, you know, every company is kind of doing their own thing. And now there's like actually massive industry efforts to align on standards to say, that's crazy. We're all going to come together and accept this. And it's really hard to do retroactively. And so as we started looking at homework and the companies that were interested in a standard, we said, 
like let's take that learning and bring the whole industry together at the outset and create shared standards that everyone at the table agrees to um, and so that we don't have like all these different different things and so we put together a steering committee of brands now it's been like six years or so patagonia target eileen fisher um, William Sonoma, West Elm, that family of brands, PBH, which is Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger, um, Etsy was a part of it, s- several others. And we spent like three years writing a wow. set of states that we would all agree to and piloting it in a huge number of locations. I think we piloted in seven countries and, and we just spent a lot of time, you know, testing it. We brought we did sessions with workers. We did sessions with workers and brands together. We we just, you know, it was, it was a big effort um, and then rolled it out. And so now that's like the basis of our seal of ethical handcraft. So the model is an open source set of standards. So any company can download them from our website and apply them in their supply chain. But then if you want to hire Nest, we verify them. So we go, it's a year long program for us. So we go on site um, and work with the artists in business or factory that's subcontracting labor to homework and train them on all of the policies and practices that they would need to become compliant. Mm-hmm. Because when we, when we started at first, we were going in and doing the assessment and everyone was failing. So we were like, okay, got it. <laughs> here a little bit and not uh, like not out of ill intent you know like not out of there was no bad intentions it was just that they weren't educated on a lot of these things um so we do training first and then we come back six months later and do the formal assessment where we verify every standard two ways so you have to um if you you know around child labor age policies you have to have a work you have to have worker interviews verify and you have to have the policy that in the records that we can see so there's um a double verification for every standard to pass um so it's it's not not easy to pass. Um, and that carries this the seal of ethical handcraft. Um, and I think two huge learnings for us. One is that I think no consumers know this. I didn't know this, but there is a lot of homeworking in our supply chains. Um, and so yeah. we were designing for artisans quickly became this like much, much, much bigger umbrella of workers, um, a lot of it very unskilled. So ranging from polybagging garments before they're mm. shipped off. We've had some really weird ones like false eyelashes, mm-hmm. try tissue paper and putting it in the sleeve before it goes to your pharmacy to buy it. Um, so a whole host of things. But the like the scale and extent of homework was really surprising to us um, in current supply chains. Um, so we now use a term for that program called hand workers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're people using their hands, but they're not necessarily all skilled artisans, gotcha. uh, which is um, which was a huge big learning for, for yeah. us. And I forgot what the other one is, but I'm sure it'll come up when we talk. Do you do you recommend like when you talk to to some of these workers or, or, or businesses, do you recommend like other processes that they should go through other sort of certification processes that you like you believe in or, or you trust is sort of like a really, really solid assessment and sort of stamp of approval might benefit their company? Um, we work really closely and align with others. So, um, you know, so we don't look at factories. <laughs> so yeah. we, and, and often this work is associated with a factory. It'll be somebody doing embellishment on fabric that ultimately gets turned into a pillow or you know a shirt. Gotcha. And so that portion will be home-based, but the factory will also go through its own assessment. And so it was really important for us that, that those, or it's, it's, not, it's ideal if those speak to each other, right? So that the factory alignment, you know, makes sense with our home assessment too. Um, And so we've been undergoing a process where we've been working with kind of the major factory auditing systems to make sure that our 
our methodologies are in sync um, so that it's like more or less you're like measuring the same kind of performance indicators and verifying sort of similar standards if you have both forms of labor in your supply chain. Um, so we work a lot with other certifications too, because ours is very niche. Like we're only doing yeah. this type of work. Um, and so often things will get like, you know, we're, we're just one component of a very long and very complicated supply chain. Gotcha. Gotcha. I wanted to go back a little bit to, to the beginning and talk about sort of the evolution of everything because the, the certification part was probably, it, it's sort of not maybe newish, but like it wasn't there from the beginning. Right. Yeah. Is that is is a lot of the things that you guys added to the program been something that um, the businesses have been asking for, or is it something that maybe the big sort of the big sort of brands wanted to or asking you, hey, can we do stuff like this, or was it like just the hand workers at home asking you for stuff? Was it like your your board asking? Like, how did the evolution of each sort of program come to be, and, and what's what is sort of that decision making process like of like? Hey, should we add this entire curriculum? Like, is it worth it? Because that's a big deal when you start adding these big tasks to, you know, to the organization. It takes up a lot of time and a lot of bandwidth and, you know, it needs to work, right? (laughs) It it was a big deal. Yeah. Like that, taking that on, of course, we were very naive at the time. So I don't think we realized quite how big of an enterprise it was going to be. But, you know, I think it's, you know, I think it's both, but I think it's really, we're very entrepreneurial as an organization. And I think what's really important is that we, like a lot of the bigger international development or any like larger NGOs, they can often be like very stuck. And mm-hmm. and so they're like, it's really important to stay true to your mission. And people say that all the time. Right. You're, you have to live in an ever-changing world. And so retail is changing around us. Technology is changing around us. And if we don't adapt our programs to that changing world, then they are no longer relevant. And so um, we try very, very hard to not be static in our programs. And that can be really frustrating if you like simplicity. So we definitely have like gone through board members and employees where it's like definitely not the right fit if you if sure. you like but i think it's really important right like you know thir- for 13 14 years ago when i started we didn't think we'd be working with huge companies and now right. we are we had to serve their needs and what their support was and you know in 10 years technology is going to be hugely totally different. different yeah and yeah. so like our like our transparency program maybe we won't even need it because they'll be like blocked like all these things but like it's like to me feels like a little foolish not to just change your programs as needs change like this year because of covid relief my team can't travel we're not auditing on site we just like scrapped a lot of our work and we just launched a huge like PPE purchasing initiative and this COVID e-commerce relief grants and like completely new programs, but it would be tone deaf to think that we could continue what we were doing at a time when our workforce is struggling. And so so it's like a delicate balance. And I, our board sometimes likes that about me and sometimes probably wants to wring my neck, but it, you know, it's a balance. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the successes over the years and, and sort of what, what are you proud of, right? As an organization or, or just personally, what sort of success, not, not necessarily numbers or, or maybe it's stories, but what do you look at when you say what you've been successful at? Like what makes you sort of proud and say, hey, what we're doing here is like really valuable, right? And this is, this is what we aim to do. And like we succeeded in doing it. Like what are some of the, the overall sort of successes that, that you or the organization are really proud of? I mean, so much of it is like I was, you know, I was 23 years old in a studio apartment in St. Louis, Missouri, 
when I started Nest. Like I had no connections to the fashion industry. I had zero connections to philanthropy mm -hmm. or people that could fund our work. And, and it was like that for a long time. Like we, you know, it was probably six or seven years before we like had any sort of scale at all. Um, and so it's like hard. Everything seems so crazy and successful to me. <laughs> that's where I was coming from. So like, you know, we have 17 employees in an office in Manhattan and I wow. like work and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, how is this happening? You know, so it, there's so many moments of that. But when we, you know, when we launched the compliance program and, you know, we thought it was going to be for artisans only because we didn't know the full extent of the homeworking supply chain world. And so, you know, like we, West Elm has a huge commitment to artisans. So they were an obvious partner. Eileen, mm -hmm. you know, some of these like very social, but then, you know, when we like had calls from like the children's place and Target and PVH, which is own, like owns like these huge companies, that was like a very incredible pivot and moment for us to realize like the, the, the opportunity and the scale that we were going to see in that program. We ended up launching it in the United Nations, like in, you know, one of their rooms. And it's just like to be standing on stage in the United Nations with those kinds of partners. It was just crazy. And then, you know, just the story, you know, the story is like, we just, so, you know, so many of our artisans are really hurting right now. And so we, yeah. um, but a lot of them have textiles and um, tailoring skills. So we launched this program to per, quote unquote purchase PPE that they were making and donating to frontline workers in their communities. Yeah. And in, you know, three weeks, like my, you know, my team, we like hold, held these Zoom calls for our artisans to call in and we did them in like in the middle of the night so people could call in from all over the world. And we just listened and so many had already translated their work to PPE because of the global sh shortages. And so when we decided to do it, you know, in one week we had like lined up MasterCard and QVC and HSN and Amazon and Target and raised this like, you know, we've dis dispersed almost a million dollars in funds in like three three weeks and produced mm -hmm. 200,000 masks and kept 4,000 people from being unemployed. And, wow. uh, and then you hear the stories, like one of them is a business, a cooperative we work with in Seattle and they work with refugees. And because of our grant, they were able to bring on new refugees to come in and work and make PPE. And for five of them, it was their very first U.S. paycheck they'd ever received was from our grant. Wow. Um, and it's just like, you hear things like that. And it's just, you know, it like, it helps you get through the day and, and all the <laughs> Yes, for sure. When you when you talk about when you didn't know, like coming in and you didn't know about like anything about like fashion, right, or that world or something, like did you do like like research? Like how did you even get you know antiquated to it? Like did you did you study up on it? Did you look at certain things and and like were there stuff that alarmed you? And because like the the fashion industry has had some sort of like really dark yeah. times and sort of like how historically companies have kind of very ignored human rights a lot and, and sort of ignored sort of paying people decent wages, right? And sort of their detriment to, to the environment, really, when you make sort of a lot of these cheap clothes at, at a mass scale. Did any of that like disappoint you at all? And, and was like a little bit of inspiration to like change some of the stuff within the industry? Or was it just like you were so, you just didn't know anything about it. You were just like, I'm just coming at this totally green. Like, I just want to make change now of what I can do. Right. There's been many moments of despair, disappointment, <laughs> <laughs> and frustration, and being appalled, and like feeling like the the 
challenges are bigger than we can overcome in equal dose to the inspirational stories. So it's it's not it's not an easy path, you know, but I think there's there's enough of the inspiration. And now I have this, you know, incredible, passionate, hardworking team who, you know, picks themselves up the next day too. But I, you know, I think for some of our, the team that that travels and does the work on site and they see some of this first time, first hand, there's been some dark, dark times for sure. And yeah. um, I think there's definitely not just in fashion and apparel, just in pot, you know, in poverty, it's sure. really hard in equity. And, and, you know, we you know we're raising money from one pool of people and then, you know, di- dispersing it in communities where it's just like, you know, just like, you know, one swimming pool, more of money would like change these people's oh, lives. Right. It's crazy. Live in two different worlds is also, you know, a challenge sometimes. And so like, you know, there's, there's like everything, there's, there's the good and there's the hard. Um, and I think the important thing is that you, you know, you keep going. I think people talk about social entrepreneurs as like visionaries a lot. And I think it's, you know, it's true because I think people have like a vision for the future. I think I do, but I think it's so much more important to talk about like, you see the the mountains in the distance, but you have to look down at your feet and you have to walk every day. And so I'm like a super avid list maker. You wake up the next day and you make a list of what you can do that day mm-hmm. to move the future and so like trying to keep everything we do like super practical super action oriented like we don't tend to like like i hate five-year plans i hate ten, like so like you can barely get me to plan a year in advance because it's just like i don't want people to think about that i want them to like you know do what they can do today uh, <laughs> well that's that's not good for how i like to end every conversation <laughs> I usually like to, I start with the journey and like I end with the future. So it's okay if your future is like five days from now. Um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> but like, since you've talked about like, like how you, maybe Monday, right? Cause to, to, to let's talk about, about like Monday when you, when you, or, or Sunday night, like when you make, you know, your weekly daily or daily like schedule, let's talk about the future of next week. And, and what does that look like in your process? You know, getting stuff done every week, because I think you're so right in that we can all envision sort of the grandioso idea. But to get to even have that even as a possibility, you have to take one step every day, one step every day. You got to go up one step, you know, you got to go up a staircase. And then it's like it's just never ending, you know, brick on top of brick to build this house. And like you said, making a daily task, right, or, or what can you do today is very important. So which I don't do very well because <laughs> my mind is everywhere and I have bad ADD. So like list and like tasks are very, very tough for me, but I would like to learn from you. So what is, what is your process like in planning? Like every day, like, what does that look like? Like we probably have yeah, very different personalities because I'm very, I'm, I have, I like lists a lot. <laughs> um, when I, like when I founded Nest, I like, this was like pre-economic, like the first economic collapse. This was yeah. like a, people were optimism abounded and and so like the idea that I wouldn't get a job was just like not on the radar of young people graduating back then it just feels very very strange (laughs) how far we've come but and I like so I didn't know what I wanted to do and so I like literally sat down and made a list of things I wanted in my life and that's like how the idea for Nest came came about was from like a numbered list Uh, but anyway so I do you know I do think that's in um, I do do that so I like I keep a, a daily list of everything that I want to try to accomplish that day. And then also we do try to break down all of our larger programs into, you know, accomplishable goals, essentially of how, of, of how we're going to do it. So I've kind of forced my team 
probably there's some people like you on my team then that, that don't don't like <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I think yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure you, you you're like the 1% of diligence and like focus. Like you're you're like abnormal and special where all the rest of us are just like monkey brain right like we just we just can't can't focus and that's like it's tough sometimes to do i'm so jealous of, of people who can do it I, like I, I keep my gmail to like 25 emails where i can see them all Ooh, so like I, yeah. like like my husband other team members have like thousands and hundreds I'm that like, would <laughs> drive me crazy i'm not that bad. i'm not that bad like that would i would not be able to like sleep at night like with that type of like inbox that would like i, I do try to get mine down to like 50 ish or something like that like but yeah i agree with you i've seen those inboxes and they freak me out we have like 798 unread i'm just like no you just have to change your email at that point <laughs> you just can't go forward no. um, i think for us home-based work is something that like most people don't know about mm -hmm. and so i think we've been with the seal like trying to bring that to consumers and i think we're really excited that we actually like the silver lining to me of this whole global pandemic might be that people all of a sudden understand the power of home-based work in ways mm -hmm. that we could have shot it from the rooftops and people wouldn't right. have understood but the fact that we had you know four thousand home workers who could make ppe during a global lockdown was pretty cool right. and so our hope is that like women need that employment at home. They need the flexibility. They don't, they don't feel safe commuting. They don't want to be in an overcrowded factory. Um, and so for us, like our future is where, you know, if a company said they had a no homeworker policy, they'd be like saying, I have an anti-woman policy that like, this is the future of work and labor law um, with, you know, international labor law, domestic labor law and corporate policy all are supportive of that kind of flexibility for people. Um, and so, you know, I think people think of cottage industry and artisan as antiquated. Mm -hmm. And I would love if in five years it's seen as the future and, and the exact opposite. And people are coming to us to learn from the way they've been doing things because cottage industry is really smart in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think, I think you're 100% correct. I want to thank you so much, Rebecca. I mean, it's been a, uh, it's been a joy to talk, talk with you and, and understand your journey and, and see what, what sort of the Nest cause is and I mean, the impact that it's, it's going to have globally or already has globally is, is immense. But like we just talked about, I think growth and growth for, for your organization is going to be probably pretty astronomical as we go forward. Because I think not only like globally and domestically, we will see sort of this work from home type of influx from everybody. But, you know, I, I think just companies in general are going to, why do we need to spend, you know, $5,000 a month for, for an office, especially like your office. I don't know if you guys are talking, but like that, that rent's probably not too cheap in Manhattan, right? Like it's, it's, it's a really, really, there's going to be a lot of decisions being made on, on do we need to, to sort of do that normal type of thing and, and have like a, a big office, big expensive when we can kind of do a lot of things remotely. But then it's like, there's always, there is a good thing about having interaction physically, mm -hmm. right? At least like a few days a week or something like exactly. that. Do you think that's a blended approach it needs to be a hundred percent like a blended blended approach so i don't know we'll see where it goes but i think it's in the end i do think it's going to be be positive so thank you for your time and, and thank you for, for everything that you're doing thank you it was lovely talking to you thank you so much